Tonight's reading is from Romans chapter 9, and that's on page 1135. It's Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had anything good or bad, in order that God's promise in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in this very place, where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Sometimes when you're in a hurry, you know, a busy day at work, you uh, grab a sandwich at your desk, 
you wolf it down, it takes two minutes, and it does the job. It kind of keeps you going for a while. Uh, sometimes you've got time, and you go for a meal, proper meal, big meal, thick steak meal, and you carve it. It's the, you know, it's the sort of thing you need, your, you need a proper weapon for, you know, a real carving knife. You can't get by with a little piddly metal thing. You take your time and you chew it and you chew it and it's good and it takes a long time and it takes quite a bit of digesting but boy is it good. It's good. Romans chapter 9 is not a light snack. It's heavy. It's dense. Uh, It'll upset some. There are truths in here which are unsettling. They can turn our world upside down. But it is good. It is nourishing. There are truths here which will really, really sustain us. So enjoy it. Don't begrudge the time it takes. Don't begrudge the work it takes. Here are truths that will nourish you for a lifetime but we need God's help. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are, uh, as we've sung once again this evening, uh, King of kings, your Lord of lords. You're the one who opens our eyes to see truth, and we pray you do that now. Please would you, by your Spirit, open our eyes to see the truth of who you are, and seeing you clearly, would that change us for your glory. Amen. In essence, I guess the thing we'll learn this evening is uh, God is more godlike than we'd realized. And that's good news. God is more godlike than perhaps we'd realized. And, and that's good. So, how big is your God? Um, sounds a bit like a Bee Gees song, doesn't it? So that's not maybe a good opening. Um, uh, but, how big is your God? I wonder if he's a bit like this. I think a number of us probably live like this. I think we probably all do at some time. God's a bit like this. Here he is, in my little pocket. I borrowed him from the, uh, from the crash. He's a bit like this. So it's Sunday night, so we'll get him out, and uh, we'll, um, we'll probably have him here or, uh, here or something. It's, it's Sunday, so here's God, and uh, we wear him maybe with some prominence. But, uh, and that's all well and good, but then it's Monday, so um, I'm afraid... I'm afraid he goes back in my pocket, and uh, he stays there until perhaps something goes wrong, and a quick, oh, sure, something's gone wrong. Where's he gone? Where's he gone? So we fumble around, and, uh, okay, I need you now, so I've got you out of my pocket, and uh, you're of some use to me now. Great. Okay, that's gone well. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'll put you back in my pocket, and uh, on I'll go in my life. I wonder if some of us live like that. Even sometimes, I think we can all drift into that sort of thinking. A God of convenience, a God who is useful to us. He saves us, after all, if we're Christians. But actually, most of the time, we're all right. We don't need him most of the time. So we just put him in the pocket and uh, bring him out on special occasions once a week. Uh, maybe even a little bit in the mornings, if, uh, if we're that way inclined. But often we just put him back. And we don't need him. We can't do that. We can't do that. And if you're in any doubt about that, Romans chapter 9. God is more godlike than you'd realized. 
It's good news. It's slightly terrifying, but it's good news. Now, it's been a few weeks um, since uh, we left off Romans chapter 8. We've had a break for uh, three weeks or so in our study of the book of Romans. If you remember, unsurprisingly, last time we were in chapter 8. And uh, there are wonderful, wonderful truths in chapter 8 of the the letter that Paul wrote to Romans. Perhaps particularly just the end of it, just turn back a page to uh, the end of chapter 8, verses uh, 38 and 39. Wonderful verses of assurance and confidence for the Christian, wonderful promises. Paul writes this, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, if you're a Christian, nothing can ever separate you from God. He's got hold of you, and he'll keep you. It's a wonderful promise. But, says someone, okay, Paul, that's all well and good. What about the Jews? What about the Jews? I mean, back back in the Old Testament, they were God's people, weren't they? I mean, God made wonderful promises to them, didn't he? And yet, they're not all believers. What's happened to the Jews? If God has made promises to them and let them down, what good is this wonderful promise at the end of chapter 8 of Romans? How can we be sure? That's how he starts off, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, and looking at the issue then of these... Jews. I mean, look what they were given. Uh, Drop down to verse 4. Paul explains it in full detail. Look, the people of Israel, look what they were given by God. Chapter 9, verse 4. Theirs is the adoption of sons. There's the divine glory. There's the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God God over all, forever praised. Look how much these people, God's people in the Old Testament, were given. All these wonderful promises, and where are they now? Lots of them aren't believers, Paul. Has God's word failed? Has God's promise collapsed? Can we trust him? Well, that's, what, uh, that's the question of the chapter, really, the big question. Has the word of God failed? Can we trust God's promises to us? If it's failed with the Jews, it's going to fail with us, isn't it, Paul? That's the issue that introduces all this stuff in chapter 9. Now, as Paul goes on to explain that, yes, we can trust God. No, his word hadn't failed. Other things spill out. And uh, I've put them down there. There are three main questions he addresses in the chapter. Has the word of God failed? Is God unjust? How can God blame us? Other things spill out, but that's the main issue. Has the word of God failed? Verse 6. Three very real questions, I think. Let's take them in turns. So verse 6. Question 1 then. Has the word of God failed? In summary, Paul's answer, no. No. Not all of ethnic Israel are God's children. Now, thinking caps on. Paul makes a distinction here. He says, yes, the, the, the people who descended from Abraham, the nation of Israel... You must distinguish. There are those who are ethnic Israelites. That is, they had Israelite parents, they're born in Israelites. They are a nation of Israelites. Yes, there are them. But then there are those who are truly saved. 
And those are two, they're different groups. They overlap a little bit, but they're different groups. Ethnic Israelite, an Israelite by birth, and then someone who's truly saved. Those are not exactly the same. Or elsewhere is the language he uses. There are natural children. Sorry, there, yeah, there are natural children, those born by birth, Israelites, and there are children of promise. Those two groups are different. And to explain this, he gives us a bit of a, a family tree. Maybe we can get that up. A bit of a family tree. So Genesis 12 is a bit of a, a recap for some of us, or maybe new. Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, to you and your descendants, I'm making these extraordinary promises. You will be my people. I will bless you. I'll put you in a land. You'll grow numerous. From you will be blessing to all the other nations of the earth. Brilliant promise. But it isn't for everyone who descends from Abraham. It's for some within Abraham's family, within the Israelite community. So Abraham has a couple of sons, uh, Ishmael and Isaac. The promise isn't for Ishmael. It is for Isaac. Isaac has a couple of sons, Jacob and Esau. The promise isn't for Esau, even though he's the eldest. But it is for Jacob. So hold on a minute. The question is, has the word of God failed? Not all, of it, not all the Israelites are believers. No, they never were meant to be. Only some within that tribe, within that community, that nation of Israel. Let's look at the, uh, the second example in a bit more detail. How does it work? Why does God choose some and not others? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Verse 13. Well, no, we need 11 to 13. 10 to 13, get it right. So, Jacob and Esau, children of Rebekah. Let's read 10 to 13 and make more sense. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why does the promise go to Jacob and not Esau? Because God chose Jacob. Now, don't get hung up on the language of the love-hate. That's just a relative thing where he says, oh, I love Jacob, I hated Esau. It's just a relative thing. Do you see the main point being made? Why was one chosen, Jacob, and not the other? God decided. And it's not, that the, not on merit. So it's not as if you've got Jacob and Esau uh, in the womb having a sort of arm-wrestling match, and uh, Jacob does a bit well, and God says, oh, I like the look of that Jacob. He's, uh, he's strong. I'm going to vote for him. He's the one I'm going to choose. Not that Esau does lots of wicked things in the womb. No. Quite clear. Verse 11, before they'd been born, before they'd done anything good or bad. What did Jacob do to deserve being chosen? Nothing. Done nothing good. Hadn't merited it. Hadn't even heard of God or responded to him. They're in the womb. But God chose him and not Esau. Now, what we're talking about here, then, is the doctrine of election. Uh, the doctrine you can find scattered throughout the Bible. 
but the doctrine that God, before the creation of the world, chose to save a fixed number of individuals because of his mercy. So the Lord God, before he even made the world, before anyone was born, before the world was made, he chose to save a fixed number, he knows, before the beginning of time, of individuals, just because he's generous and merciful. He chose some and not others. That's what's being spoken about here, it says in verse 11, the doctrine of election. So before the beginning of the world, God chose Jacob, but not Esau. Does that strike you at all as unfair? Well, question number two, verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? So Paul, Paul anticipates this. He's saying, no, no, I've explained to you, haven't I, that um, you know, not all of Israel was due to be saved. Not all of them, no. God chose some and not others. That's always been his way. Well, hold on a minute. Isn't, isn't that a bit unfair? God chose some but not others? No, not at all. Question two. Justice demands that God's glory is revealed. So verse 14. Is God unjust? Not at all. That's rubbish. Now, logically, hopefully you can see this is true. Just think about it logically for a moment. Uh, perhaps the picture is a bit like this. Uh, one day, the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, she wanders down to Wormwood Scrubs Prison. And she just releases half the prisoners. And they say, why, why are you releasing me? I, you know, I'm due to serve another six, seven, eight years. Yeah, yeah, I'm just being kind. Just being kind to you, having mercy upon you. So uh, you're not going to have to serve your sentence. Right. Why are you only releasing half of us and not the others? Oh, just because I've decided. Well, that's not fair. I don't like it. It's not fair. Well, hold on a minute. <laughs> if you want justice, I'll just bang you all up again. That's justice. Just because I'm having mercy upon some, you can't demand that I release all. It's not unjust for me just to be generous. And logically, you can see the, the arguments are nonsense. If you want justice for human beings, it will be that God left us all to face the consequences of our sin. That, that will be justice. Now, there's a logical argument which you could get elsewhere, but that's not where Paul goes. That's not how Paul responds to this question. His answer is effectively, look, if you want to speak about justice, let's talk about the greatest crime that there is in the world. The greatest crime is refusing to give God the glory that he deserves. That's the greatest crime that the world has ever seen. Let me try and explain illustration. Um, you, you know what it's like at, at work when you don't get the credit for something you've done. It's just annoying. You know, you do something really, you come up with a brilliant idea, and uh, the boss says in a meeting, it was a brilliant idea. Who was that? Someone says, me. And you think, mm -hmm. no, it wasn't. It was me. It's irritating if someone takes the credit, which is yours. It's just really annoying. Uh, J.K. Rowling at the moment, I understand, is uh, suing someone in the States because they've produced a Hogwarts compendium of, uh, you know, sort of all the stuff. All, they've taken her books and just written it all up in a sort of encyclopedic fashion, and they're now selling this Hogwarts compendium. And she's saying, uh, that's my stuff. <laughs> uh, I have intellectual property rights over that. The, you know, Harry, he's mine. Hermione, she's mine. Quidditch, you didn't come up with that, did you? No, that's mine. She's saying that those are my, that's my stuff. 
You can't just produce it. I get the credit for that. And indeed, (laughs) the money. It's annoying if someone takes the credit that's due for you. In a very similar way, uh, fairly recently I had the odd experience of sitting in church, and not this church, I visited another church, and I heard one of my sermons. Someone delivered one of my sermons back to me. (laughs) That was a bit strange. I thought, this is familiar. This is very familiar. That's very, very, very familiar. And, uh, you know, it was a little embarrassing, I think, for the guy afterwards. He just got hold of one of my sermons and delivered it. That was a bit cheeky. Now, unsurprising guy, I'm not suing him for quite the same amount as J.K. Rowling. <laughs> Somewhat disappointingly, my sermons aren't worth quite as much as Hogwarts and Harry and all. But one day, one day, one day, maybe that's true. The point is, when you've done something, when you've written something, created something, and someone else takes the credit... That, that is a crime. It's theft. You know, in J.K. Rowling terms, that's multi-million dollar theft. How much more so with God? He's created us, given us, you, me, every single bit of life we have, our health, every single talent, gift, every opportunity in life. And yet many, many people turn around and say, I don't, you know, stuff you. It's all mine. Well done me. Well done me. I've got myself. I'm so clever. I've given myself these opportunities. I've got this job. I've got this family because of me. And that's taking the credit that God deserves. God says, hold on a minute. <laughs> hold on a minute. I created the world. I created you. I gave you. All that you are is because of me. You owe me your life. You owe me the gratitude. You owe me the credit. Or to use the Bible's word, we owe God glory. To him should be the glory and the credit. And robbing him of that, that's a crime. That's the greatest crime there is. We're we're contradicting the whole purpose, the whole nature of the universe in doing that. That's a crime. And justice demands that God receives the glory he deserves. That's the justice that needs to be put right. It is fundamental to justice that God reestablishes his glory. Okay, back to the text. How does he do that? He does it by having mercy on some and hardening the hearts of others. Verse 15. Uh, Paul is quoting here from um, uh, Exodus 33. Uh, Just a bit of background. In Exodus 33, Moses. Moses comes before God and says, God, can I see your glory? Can Can you reveal your glory? God says to him, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see what he's saying to Moses? He's effectively saying, look, my glory is that there is nothing, that there is no one who can force me to do anything. I'm absolutely sovereign. It is essential to who I am and part of my glory that I can do what I want. No one influences me, says God, and there's no one else in the, nothing else in the whole of the universe can say that. It's part of my glory that I can do what I want. I am absolutely sovereign. 
There's nothing that comes close to this. But do, you know, um, uh, in, in Roman times, uh, the Colosseum in Rome, you'd have uh, gladiator matches to the death. You know, 100,000 or however many were, were crammed into the Colosseum, uh, screaming, you know, and you've got a gladiator contest to the death. A bit more than that. It's like I'm eating spaghetti or something. And um, uh, at the end of the contest, uh, one of the gladiators has his uh, sword at the throat of another. And he's clearly defeated. You know, there's no way he's getting away. And they both look to the emperor. What's the emperor going to do? And, of course, he does that thing. puts his hand out. And he decides, yes, I'll have mercy on the defeated. He fought well. Or no, I'll kill him. Of course, at that moment in time, the emperor has extraordinary extraordinary power. I mean, to have the power of life and death just like that is extraordinary. But it isn't quite the same as what we're talking about here for a whole number of reasons. One, God is perfect and does things perfectly, not a capricious emperor. But secondly, the emperor, of course, makes his decision on the basis of how well the two have fought. He makes the decision partly on the basis of the crowd, I guess. If the whole crowd is saying, mercy, 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 you know, the emperor is not going to displease the crowd by going, and he's got 100,000 people saying, idiot, 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 you know, that might be a bit. So he's not completely at liberty to do what he wants. God is. Do you see, God is, is more godlike than sometimes we realize. He's saying he's part of who he is, and part of his glory. He can do whatever he wants. He can have mercy on whom he chooses and withhold it from others. So this doctrine of election, it reveals that there is no one, there is no thing that compares to God. It reestablishes, if we had any doubt, he is the one who deserves glory because there's, there's nothing like him. There's no one like him. God is more godlike than you realized. But that is wonderful news. Can I say at this point, this doctrine of election, you find it scattered throughout the Bible, there's no doubt about it, it's pretty heart-revealing. Because some will hear this and think, I hate this. This cannot be true. Why? Because they want to be in charge of their lives. Others, of course, and I take it for those of us who are Christians, know that God is God. And we say, no, God, you're in charge. We accept that. It's very humbling. It's very humbling to know that you you chose me just because you chose me. There's nothing within me, nothing intrinsic to who I am, that makes me worthy of choice. But you've done so. It's very humbling. But how we respond to it, it's quite heart-revealing. Will we let God be God? Or do we refuse and say, no, in my heart, I want to be in charge? Well, for those who refuse, question three. For those who refuse to let God be God, they ask question three. How can God blame us? Uh, verse 19, uh, Paul says, look, he's, he's talking rhetorically, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? Do you see the question? Okay, Paul, I've followed you. 
I followed the argument, I followed the logic. You're saying that God chooses to have mercy on some and withholds it from others, okay? So why am I at fault? What answer? Well, the answer Paul gives here is, look, how, how can you answer back to God? Now, there is another answer. We'll look at it next week in chapter 10. There is another answer, which is human beings, we're still responsible for what we do. We still choose to rebel against God. We still choose to sin. And Paul comes back to that in chapter 10 next week. But the answer he gives here, it's just very blunt. Let's read. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Now, I don't know how many of us are potters. Uh, Probably not many. But I'm sure we can get the point. The only time I've done pottery once in my life, I think I was 11, possibly 12, at school. What a mistake putting a load of school children in charge of, you know, the pottery wheel and the clay. Because, of course, all we were concerned with was how fast can we make the wheel go? You know, you know, sort of making this. And then we played a sort of pottery version of Russian roulette. We'd make the wheel go as fast as we could, chuck on a bit of clay, and then see who it spun off and hit. (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And um, uh, we had one lesson, and then we got banned. So that's my experience of pottery. However, the point is pretty clear. Paul says, look, we are like a dumb lump of clay in the hands of a master craftsman. And he's got us and he's molding us and he's shaping us on the wheel. And it's as if we turn back to the master craftsman and say, well, why have you you put a handle there? What's that doing? And the craftsman says, hold on a minute, clay. What one? Why are you talking? But then the craftsman says, (laughs) the craftsman says, hold on a minute, Clay, how many pots have you made? None. Right. Do do you know what I'm making you into? No. Shut up. And so, effectively, the Lord God says to us, I gave you life. Can I just check for a moment? Uh, are you able to sustain the lives of 6.7 billion people on the planet? Can, can you do that? Can, oh, no. No, you probably, you probably can't. Can you? Have you planned the next 50,000 years of human history? Have you, oh, no. No. Do, do you know where the, the universe is going? Do you, do you know the end of history? Do, do, you know, do you know what's going to happen in the next? No, you don't. No. Have you ever given life to anyone? Have you, have you created a human being out of no, nothing? No. No. No, you're like a lump of clay, says the Lord God. What, what right have you got to ask these questions of me? It's very humbling. And as I say, that isn't the only answer to this question. We get more in chapter 10. But the first thing Paul wants to say to his audience then and to us is, Hold on a minute. Who who are you to ask that question? God is more godlike than you'd realized. That is humbling. 
but it is great news. Uh, So it is, verse 21, he has mercy on some, but withholds it from others. He knows what he's doing. uh, A number of years ago, when I was a school teacher, I worked with a chap, brilliant guy, Lionel, a a lovely man who I have enormous respect for, uh, one of life's great gentlemen, slightly eccentric. He had gone to this school, City of London School, as a boy, went to Cambridge for three years, came back, at, came back and taught at City of London for the next 40. <laughs> it was his life. He was pretty eccentric, slightly crazy. He sort of burst into your classroom and say, right, you know, today, boys, we're teaching, and then realized that you were there. <laughs> Are you always in here at this time? Yes, Lionel. Have you seen my class? No, Lionel. I mean, he's a bit eccentric. <laughs> he was a bit eccentric. But he was a, he was a truly, truly great man in many ways. I, I thought he was a wonderful guy to work with. He'd read the Bible. He, under, he wasn't a Christian. He'd read the Bible. He understood this. And we had a number of discussions about this issue. He said, I cannot believe in a God of election. Lionel, why not? Because I want to run my life. Because I want to be in charge. Ultimately, it's an issue of pride. Do we humble ourselves before the God who is more godlike than we often think? Paul continues. He does reveal the curtains a little bit more, verses 22 and 23. He, he draws back the curtains a bit to explain why God would act in such a way. Verse 22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this? Here's the key. What if he did this? Why did he do it? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? God created a world where he'd have mercy on some, and withhold it from others. He did it so that those on whom he had mercy would recognize how extraordinarily generous that was. They'd recognize, hey, it's not automatic. Hey, we don't deserve this. He did it so that we'd spend eternity if we're Christians praising him. Now, it's, I guess it, it, when we read that and we understand that and we think, well, okay, I get that, a, it, but I'm not sure. I, I, don't, I don't get it all. I don't quite understand how that m- might be fair. Well, at that point, we need to be humble before God and recognize that perhaps in a way we don't understand, it is more wonderful, more glorious, more fitting. It's the best way that God should establish the world like this. Uh, Let me try and explain again. Uh, History tells us that Queen Elizabeth was um, deeply impressed with uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, so so much so that she was very reluctant to sign her death warrant. So uh, they never met. Elizabeth made sure that the two queens never met because she feared that she'd like Mary too much. And there they are, two women doing a, a man's job at that time, ruling a nation, trying to keep their subjects under control, strong, capable, clever women. Elizabeth thought, oh, here's someone I'm going to really like if I ever meet her. So she made sure they never met. When Elizabeth had evidence 
that Mary was conspiring against her, trying to work with the Spanish to overthrow Elizabeth from the throne. Elizabeth signed her death warrant. And so we're told that when she received the news that Mary, Queen of Scots, had been beheaded, she wept. She thought, the only person who perhaps will ever really understand me has died. She was deeply reluctant to kill her. But she did, because it was for the good of the nation. Now, that's what's being suggested here. We don't know all the details, but in a way that we don't understand, but we're told is true. It is better that God has mercy on some, withholds it from others. That is the best way of arranging the universe. It is for the good of those he saves. It is for the honor of his name. It is a more splendid, wonderful, greater way of arranging the universe. How so? That we just stop. At that point, we stop. And say, so we don't know all the details, but God makes that much clear. And he goes on to explain verses 24 to 29. Look, that's, this is exactly what the Old Testament had promised. Throughout the Old Testament, we're told that God would have mercy on many Gentiles and withhold it from some of the nation of Israel. So God's word hasn't failed. That was always the way. That had always been God's plan. That's always how God has acted, to have mercy on some and withhold it from others. Okay. Having this in place, so what? Let me uh, briefly try and draw out four implications um, for uh, different groups. Four little things, four little arrows there. Uh, The first, I'd say, to those who are not yet Christians, uh, for those amongst us who are not yet Christians, what does this mean for you? It means choose Christ. Now, you could sit here this evening and think, okay, I think I've got this. Um, Before the beginning of the world, God chose some and not others to save. Well, it's a fat lot of good me being here. (laughs) Um, If God hasn't chosen me, there's no point me being here. If he has, he'll save me anyway. (sighs) Why bother coming along to church? Because, and we'll see this again next week, we're still responsible. Human beings are still responsible for their choices. And so you, you need to choose Christ. And when you do that, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll know. You'll know that actually God had chosen you before the creation of the world. But for goodness sake, don't let this be an excuse. Can't be that. Just choose Christ and you'll know that you're one that God has chosen. But you see how wonderful this is. You can't be too wicked to become a Christian. Because it's not dependent upon your behavior. You'd have been chosen when you were in the womb before that, before the creation of the world. You can't be too wicked to become a Christian. Anyone can. You can't be too clever or indeed too stupid to become a Christian. It's not dependent upon your ability. It's because God chose you. That's wonderful news. If you're not yet a Christian, choose Christ. Uh, Secondly, um, second little implication, which is, I guess, for all of us, to everyone... Don't boast. <laughs> I mean, if, if you and I walked in here this evening feeling pretty proud and full of ourselves, this is real. <sighs> How can you be proud when you read this? It kills our pride when we know that all that we are is because of what God has done. It kills our pride. 
I am clay in the potter's hands, and so are you. It's very humbling. But it's also good news. It's good news that we're not the masters of our own destiny. The Lord is. Let me try and explain why I think that is. Uh, Some here would have been uh, skiing in the last few weeks or going off soon. Uh, Now, you could go on a skiing holiday, which are very lovely things, and uh, sit on a chairlift and uh, just daydream all day long about yourself. In fact, a bit more than that. You sit on a chairlift and you ski down the runs and you shout out at everyone, Look at me! Look at me! I'm wonderful! I'm elegant! I'm stylish! Now, there's one or two who might even do that here. No. The, um, now, you could do that. Not many people would respond. Most people would think you're a bit weird, or very weird, or obnoxious. Um, you can't do that. But imagine, and also, it would be very discouraging. So that after a half a day or something of doing this, no one takes any notice of you. So you sit on the chairlift and think, well, I'm feeling pretty flat, actually. Until someone comes along and says... Oh, shut up. Don't look at you. Look at the mountains. Look at the scenery. And so you look up. You think, gosh, (laughs) they're breathtaking, aren't they? They're stunning. There's far more joy in enjoying something else which is wonderful than in being self-obsessed and self-absorbed. And I guess some of us live that way. We live our lives thinking, I'd be far happier if people esteemed me, if people had a much higher view of me. And so we spend our lives going, look at me, look at me. Now, we don't say it, but effectively that's how we live. Think highly of me, boss at work. Think highly of me, girl in pub. Think highly of me, man in bar. What do you know? You think, look at me, look at me. That's how we live our lives sometimes. But actually the Bible is clear, and it's obvious when you think about it, there is a deeper joy in enjoying something else which is truly splendid. You become less self-obsessed and you just enjoy. You look upon it and think, that is wonderful. So we don't want to boast in ourselves. It's much more fulfilling to enjoy God. Uh, third, third, more briefly, uh, to Christians now. To Christians, be confident. Third little thing, be confident. Do you see that the roots of your salvation go back into eternity? Do you see that God chose you before you're even born? You can't bog it up if God has chosen you. Be confident. Hold on to Romans 8. Those promises are precious and true. It's a stunning thing to consider that for each of us who is a Christian, for you, before the creation of the world, God decided you, he'd have mercy upon you. He so arranged the history of the universe to bring together your mother and your father. He set the day upon which you'd been born. And then as you grow up in life, he arranged the circumstances. He took you to London, Glasgow, Bristol, Sydney, where you met people who explained the gospel to you. And he determined before the beginning of the world, the day and the date, and the time, and the minute that you'd become a Christian. And he'll keep you, because before the beginning of the world, he's already determined the day upon which you'll die. That day is set and can't be changed. 
and you'll die and you'll come before him. And the living God, you'll behold him face to face and he'll say, it is wonderful to see you. I've been waiting eternity for you. And it's true. The roots of your salvation go back into eternity. So be confident of your Christian faith. Fourth and last, again to Christians, have hearts like Paul does. Do you see, here's Paul, I mean, he's just outlined so clearly the godness of God, the absolute sovereignty of God. But what does that, does that make him a fatalist? Not at all. I mean, look, just look at what he says, chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Look, I know that God is, I know the godness of God, and so what do I do? I pray. I pray and pray for people I love that they may be saved. My heart is torn for them. I expend emotional anguish and energy, longing for them, acting for them. I mean, there's never been a... I mean, Paul is, humanly speaking, the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. His belief in election, what does it do? It sends him out. He does all he can to proclaim the gospel. Or the beginning of chapter 9, verse 2... I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. The knowledge that there are people whom he loves and they're cut off from Christ, it tears his heart apart. He has unceasing anguish before because of it. And I don't know about you, but I read this and think... When was the last time I cried for my father who's not a Christian? When have these truths driven me to pray unceasingly for those I love? And only when we really understand these truths will they do that. So this doctrine of election, this godness of God, it sends us out knowing that God has people he's chosen before the creation of the world. We don't know who they are, but we're to go out and care for them and seek for them. And so we just preach the gospel to everyone because we don't know who they'll be. And so, you know, we've got a a week of events coming up and we'll invite people and we don't know who, you know, some will come, some will not. Perhaps the majority we ask will just say, no, you must be joking. But a number will want to come and find it intriguing and interesting. Who will become Christians? We don't know, but some, some in this city will. Because God has chosen to have mercy upon some. And we don't know who they are. So this truth has got to send us out. We've got to care for those who aren't yet God's people who are cut off from Christ. We've got to pray for them. We've got to speak to them and hope that they'll trust in Jesus Christ. We can't have God in our pocket. We can't have God in our pocket. I mean, look, this is a blasphemous nonsense, isn't it? We can't have God in our pocket. Do, do we understand God is more godlike? He is more powerful, sovereign, in charge than often we think day to day. And we need to honour him as such. And we can trust him. 
because that's what he's like. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are deep truths that sometimes our our, our heads, let alone our hearts, struggle to understand. We so want to be the captain of our own fate. We so want to be the masters of our own lives. And to recognize that isn't true, that you're the Lord, you're in charge, is very humbling for us, and yet so liberating. Such relief and release for those of us who are Christians to know that you'll hold us, you'll keep us and sustain us, that your promises never fail, you've not broken one. Father, for those here who who don't yet know you, please would you open their eyes. Please would you help them to acknowledge you for whom you are and give you the glory and therefore the justice that is deserved. Father, we praise you for you are a greater God than often we think. And that is wonderful news. Amen.